may be seated. And at this time, the children from kindergarten through sixth grade would be dismissed for Children's Church. And I would invite you, if you have a Bible, to open it to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We continue in this series on the book of Matthew. Uh, We're in this beginning stage of the ministry of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 12 on John the Baptist and preparing the way, talking about preparing the way for a revival um, as God is doing reviving work in our country and in our world, uh, that we would position ourselves for revival as well, more and more. We want to continue looking at that idea this morning and what does it look like and, and what, what can we expect when God pours out his spirit in increasing ways and reviving us. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 is the account of the baptism of Jesus. And Matthew records and he says, Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, John the Baptist. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now, it's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said this, is my son, whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. May the Lord add his blessing this morning to the reading of his word. There are sermon notes in your bulletin. You can follow along. As we read at the beginning of the message this morning, we're beginning the service this morning, we read about Moses and being, him being hidden in the cleft of the rock and, and his desire to see the glory of God, not just to know about the glory of God. He didn't want more information about God. He didn't want more information about the glory or the presence or the goodness of God or the name of God. He wanted his glory. And he said, Lord, if your glory does not go with us, if your very presence does not go with us, then we don't want to go anywhere. He didn't want to know just about God. He didn't want information about God. He wanted an encounter with God. You know, it's kind of like if you were going to buy a a new car. You may have spent time before you would do that reading various possibilities that you might be interested in. You might narrow it down to a few makes and a few models and read some reviews on things like car and driver or motor trend or U.S. News and World Report, and you get all the information, you hear all the things But I don't know many of us that would buy a car based upon what reviews are and what other people were saying about it. You would want to take that information that you had and then said, I gotta go try this car. I'm gonna drive this car and this car and this car. And I wanna experience what these cars are like before I spend the money to actually buy a car. There's a difference between knowing about something and actually experiencing it, actually encountering it, actually having experience with it. So we talk about revival. Revival is not information-based. Truth is taught, it's preached, but that truth that is taught and preached must be experienced in the presence of God if revival is going to happen in the hearts and the lives of people and in churches and in our country. 
One author recently wrote that this coming revival that we sense God is doing will be more of a presence movement than a preaching movement. And I know I say that as a preacher, that the goal will not be more and longer sermons. The goal will be in the sermons that it would lead us to encounter with the presence of God. Because we can learn all about God and we can learn all about revival. We can learn all about his spirit. We can learn all about these things. But it doesn't, if it doesn't lead us to encounter with the presence of God, it's just more information. And information has this ability to puff us up and make us think we're something. But the information must lead us to presence. And when presence, the presence of God comes, that's where we're transformed. And that intersection of truth leading us to presence, transformation, revival happens. It's in his presence that he revives us. It's in his presence that he changes us. We can't run from his presence. We must run to his presence. Jesus' baptism was grounded in all kinds of truth. But it was this experience with God's presence, as we will look into his baptism, is that is what stands out. That is what changed the whole circumstance. And this morning, we want to recognize that the very same realities that Jesus experienced, that they are available to us. As we talked about this morning, being in Christ, hidden in Christ, because of being in Christ, because of his work on the cross, the very things that Jesus experienced are the very same things that we can experience in Christ. So let's take a look this morning, dive into this. But before we we really dive into it, I want to give us one quick word, and that's a word, a brief word about baptism. Because this is the context of what is going on in this passage. And so, again, verses 13 through 15, Jesus comes from Galilee down to the Jordan River where John was baptizing people. People were coming out of Jerusalem to be baptized for repentance of their sin. They were confessing their sins. They were confessing their personal sins. They were also confessing their national sins, preparing the way for the coming Messiah, for what God was doing. And Jesus comes to be baptized by John. And so John, in verse 14, tries to deter Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John acknowledges that Jesus being baptized is not because Jesus had sin to confess. It's not because Jesus was dealing with needing cleansing. Jesus was holy and perfect, the the God-man. There was no sin within him. He committed no sin. So he was not coming to be baptized because he had sin to confess or repent of. So why? Because John understands, you don't need to be baptized, Jesus. You're not the one who should be baptized. I should be the one being baptized by you, not me baptizing you. But John eventually does. Why? Verse 15 tells us, Jesus said, let, us be, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then we're told John consented. So why? I believe there's a couple reasons why Jesus was baptized and why John, recognizing that Jesus didn't need it, still baptized him. The first is that what Jesus said, it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. 
Jesus in his humanity needed to identify with humanity. If he was going to be the the perfect sacrifice, the the perfect substitute, if he was going to be the one who, as Adam sinned, Jesus would be the second Adam and he would stand in and he would take the sins of humanity, he had to fully identify with us. And so he identified with humanity. He was obedient to God. He was obedient to the need to be wholly devoted and wholly consecrated, which just simply means my life is fully God's. That the people were expressing when they were coming for baptism. And so Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness, identifies with humanity. Being fully devoted, fully consecrated to God, he entered the waters a baptism. It was an outward display of an inward attitude of Jesus. It's one reason, to fulfill all righteousness. But there's a second reason, I believe. I believe that Jesus was setting a pattern for all those who would follow him. At the end of Matthew, we'll get to sometime, be a while, we're only in Matthew chapter 3. Eventually, we're going to get to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, and he says, As you go, make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. Part of what discipleship following after Jesus means is identifying with his death, his resurrection, in baptism, and being obedient to him. The disciples practice this in Acts chapter 2. When Peter teaches and preaches one of the greatest sermons other than Jesus at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes and the people ask, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized. There is this connection of repentance of our sins and identification outwardly to let the world know, I'm no longer as I was, I am a follower of Jesus. And so Jesus was not only fulfilling all righteousness, identifying with humanity, but he was setting a pattern. He was setting a pattern that we too would follow after. That those who are followers of Jesus would outwardly declare to the world through baptism, I am a follower of Jesus. I am identifying myself with Christ. As we get into that baptismal tank and the water is there when we are in the water but haven't gone down, it represents our life in sin before Christ. And as we go down under the water, We are identifying with Christ. We are buried with Christ. We have died to our sin. We have died to our old self. And when we come out, we are raised just as Jesus was raised to new life. We are raised to new life. It's a a way to identify and to tell the world, I am a follower of Jesus. It's an act of obedience to him. Because Jesus never calls us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. And so he identifies with humanity, but he also sets a pattern for all of us. So in this very brief word about baptism, I just want to encourage you and ask you this question. Have you been baptized? Have you publicly been baptized? Have you publicly said, I am a follower of Jesus and been obedient to him and followed his way? If you haven't, I I would encourage you, come talk to me, and I would love to set up a baptism time for you. We've got this tank that's in a storage room downstairs that needs to be used. 
And we'd set it up right here in the sanctuary. And on a Sunday morning, we would celebrate baptisms as we see people identify with Christ, give testimony to their following after Jesus, and celebrate the fact that Jesus has done an amazing work in your life. So if you've never been baptized, my brief word on baptism before we launch into this is talk to me and we want to do this. We want to celebrate baptism with you. All right, so it's my little side runoff. I'll do my best not to do any more side runoffs. That was a planned side runoff, so all right. All right, so two, two thoughts this morning, anointed and attested. Anointed and attested as we walk through this passage together in Jesus' baptism. This concept here in this passage as we look to not only know the truth but experience the truth is this idea of being anointed by the Spirit. That Jesus, Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. It says in verse 16, after, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water and at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. As soon as he was baptized, went down in the water, came back up, was coming out of the water, the Spirit of God in the form of a dove comes down on Jesus. It says that he saw heaven open. Now, scholars debate who is Matthew talking about when he says he. Is he talking about Jesus saw heaven open? Or is, he, or is it John the Baptist saw heaven open? Who is he? Just this general he saw heaven open. I kind of think Jesus saw heaven open. But I also think John saw heaven open. And the reason I think John saw heaven open, because in John chapter 1, verses 33 and 34, John the Baptist declares, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God in reference to Jesus, because he said, I was told the one that I see the Holy Spirit descend upon and stay upon and rest upon is the Messiah. And so I saw it, John says, therefore I know that this Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. So I think Jesus saw it, but I know from other scriptures, John saw it. So let's say he is, they both saw it. They saw heaven opened and the spirit of God in the form of a dove come down and light on him. Not a word we use very often, other than I'm turning on the light, light switch. But some translations will say lighting, some will say a light, others will say rest upon. And the idea is this resting upon, lighting upon, resting, settling upon. So in the form of a dove, the Holy Spirit comes down and settles on, rests on, is with Jesus. This is to fulfill what the Jews were waiting for in the prophecy about the servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. This showed that Jesus was, in fact, the one that was promised to come. The one that all of humanity, and particularly the Jews, were waiting for, the servant of the Lord. 
Here's the wild thing about this whole baptism of Jesus. His whole anointing, being anointed by the Spirit, is that Jesus in his humanity lived empowered by the Spirit. In the humanness of Jesus, he did not access his divinity. Sometimes we read about Jesus and we see, oh, he, he did this miracle and he cast this demon out and he healed this person and he made five, you know, a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread turn in and feed 5,000 people plus. And we think, oh, that's because he was God. Well, he certainly was God. But Philippians 2 says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself and made himself nothing. The only way you can make yourself nothing is if you were first something. And so we believe that Jesus, fully God in human form, did not live as God in, the, in accessing his divinity. Everything that he did was not because he was walking around saying, I'm God. It was because he lived in perfect relationship with the Father and was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that everything that Jesus did, he showed us how to live. He showed us how to be empowered. He showed how to be led by the Spirit. He showed what was possible when a person is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Which is why Jesus was able to say in John 14, the things I have been doing, you will do even in greater ways. The Spirit empowered, the Spirit anointed Jesus. And so for us, as an application to this idea of anointed by the Spirit, Jesus being anointed by the Spirit, is that when we are living and when we are in Christ, we ourselves are commanded to be anointed or empowered or filled with the Spirit. Just as Jesus was, we are to be as he was. We're doing this Bible study on Tuesday morning in our discipleship group at 10 a.m., we're looking at the book of Ephesians, and we've just gotten into it, but in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, the Apostle Paul says, and you also were included in Christ. This theme that we've heard about this morning, hidden in the cleft of the rock, a picture of being in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will have the fullness of this. But we are hidden with Christ, in Christ, and he is in us. And so you also were included in Christ when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and when we heard it and believed it, there was a moment in our lives when we were marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a, a deposit or a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance, the fullness of our salvation one day in heaven after this life, until the redemption of those who are God's possession, all to the praise of his glory. When we come to recognize that Jesus is the one who has paid our sin debt on the cross, and when we hear that good news that though we were once dead, we can now be made alive. Once we were in the kingdom of darkness, now we can be brought into the kingdom of light. Once 
We were spiritually dead, but now the Spirit of God can come and bring life to us from above, being born again. When we hear and understand, having believed this, there is this transaction that takes place. We are brought to life, and God puts his Spirit, the same Spirit that Jesus had, his Spirit in us as a stamp, as a down payment for what will be complete one day. Every person who has trusted Christ has the Spirit of God within them. And that should be good news. But there's another piece to this. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, you, this is after Jesus is about uh, resurrected, about to send a, uh, ascend to heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Some translations, upon you. So that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There is this work of the Spirit where he comes and resides in us. But there's also other works of the Spirit where he comes upon us to fill us, to control us, to empower us. And it's not just a one-time work We are told to be continually being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. To continually have the Spirit of God anoint us, empower us, fill us, come upon us. So that we have the presence in the power of the Spirit just as Jesus did. This will require faith. We have to believe that this is possible and ask for it. It requires continual emptying of ourselves and crucifying of our sinful nature. Every time the Lord shows us an area of sin in our lives and we confess it and we turn from it, it's an opportunity for us to not just say, oh, I left that behind, but it's an opportunity for us to say, now, Lord, where that sin once had control of me, would your spirit now come and fill me and come upon me and inhabit me in a greater way. As I cast that aside, I want more of you, more of the presence of the Spirit in my life. And so there is this practice of emptying self, crucifying the flesh. And as we sang, I will wait on you this morning, one of the often neglected because it's not easy and not fun for outpourings of the Spirit is waiting upon God. Sitting in his presence, actively seeking his face, but waiting. Friends, I am the chief of being able to be distracted by things like this. Any of you ever, if you have one of these things, be in a moment where you don't have something going on and you're like, what am I going to do to fill my time? Oh, let me go check this. Let me check this. Anybody with me on that? Where I know I need to go, where the Lord continues to show me, but I don't always do it well, is that is the time that the longing is there and I'm choosing to fill it with a distraction. And I believe the Lord is calling us more and more when we have those idle moments, when we have those things where we go, what do I do with this moment? I've got this thing coming. 
but I'm in this moment, it's not quite time. What do I do with this moment? Rather than scroll or rather than turn on the news or rather than do something, what if we said, Lord, here I am, I wait on you. I will trust in you, I will wait on you. Even if it was for five minutes until the next thing comes, what if it was, Lord, I will wait on you. I will wait on you. I, will, I believe there would be more of the Spirit's presence in our lives if there was less of other things and more time waiting on God. The great evangelist D.L. Moody went to a town to do a crusade and some of the local pastors were kind of frustrated. They were like, why do we have to bring D.L. Moody here? Why can't we just do it? Does D.L. Moody have more of the spirit than we do? One wise pastor stood up and said, D.L. Moody doesn't have more of the spirit than we do, but the Holy Spirit has more of D.L. Moody than he has of us. Friends, I believe the Lord is calling us to more of the Spirit's anointing. It will take faith. It will take casting aside some of the things of our flesh and self and sinful nature. But I think it will also take actively waiting on God. And, and I know 6, a, 6 p.m. on Sunday night may not be the ideal time for everyone for a praise and worship time, but I... There's something about the uniqueness of the people of God coming together to worship, to pray, to wait upon God. And so if it works at all in your schedule, we've got an hour extra of sunlight tonight, come on out and worship, wait on him together. So think about revival just for one more moment in this context. I've talked about in the last couple of weeks about Asbury and what God has done down in Asbury and stirring that up in the lives of students. And I had a friend who went down who was invited down just to help and to be a part of what God was doing. And one of the testimonies that came out of there consistently was that there were students as they were confessing sin, as they were turning from things who were, who were consistently students being filled with the Spirit of God in a fresh way who were discovering their giftings for ministry, not because they were discovering their giftings, but because the Spirit of God was having more of them. They were being encountered by the Spirit. Friends, we could talk all day about the theology behind being filled with the Spirit. But if it does not lead us to being more controlled by the Spirit of God, it's just information. Jesus was filled, empowered, anointed by the Spirit. And if Jesus needed the Spirit, how much more does Mark Conklin need the Spirit of God? May we be people who hunger and thirst after the Holy Spirit together. Second piece is this. Attested. Jesus, in his baptism, was attested by the Father. He was attested by the Father. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We don't use the word attested very often unless it's in kind of a legal thing. It's this idea of certifying, declaring by testimony that something exists. But the Father is attesting to the fact 
by speaking over him from heaven that this is the Messiah. That again, as I shared in Isaiah 42.1 a few moments ago, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. That here is the Father fulfilling again in this declaration and this attesting over the Son that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for. And the Father attesting over Jesus that he was the Son. He says three things about Jesus. He says, first, this is my Son. He identifies to all those who were listening, all those who were present, that this Jesus is the Son of God the firstborn among creation, the pre-existing one, the one who John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God from the beginning. This is God in the form of a man. This is my son and you are mine. It's the power of the father's declaration saying you belong to me. You are my son. He says, not only this is my son, but this is the son whom I love. The love relationship of the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is expressed here. And before all who were listening, before all who were there, and for all who would read it for generations after, the Father is declaring, I love the Son. This is my son, whom I love. And he says, thirdly, in whom I am well pleased, or in whom brings me pleasure. Understand that this is the first time that Jesus shows up as an adult. As far as we know, he's never done a miracle. He hasn't preached a sermon. He hasn't cast out a demon. He hasn't healed a sick person. He's done nothing for the Father to say, I'm well pleased because he's done this, 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 this. He simply says, this is my son whom I love. In him I'm well pleased because he's my son. It's not performance-based in any way, shape, or form. This is the pride of a father over their son. This is the pride of a father with their newborn. And that child has done nothing to say, I'm so proud of this child. This is my son whom I love. I am well pleased. There's pride in the father's heart over this child. And this is what God is declaring over his son. He's declaring, this is the one. This is the one you've been waiting. I'm attesting to it. The world need to know, needed to know this. The world still needs to know Jesus is the son. He is the promised one. But Jesus also needed to know this. In his humanity, he was about to be sent into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And we'll look at that next week. And he needed to hear in his humanity, you are my son. I love you. And in you, I'm well pleased. And so if we are in Christ, hidden in Christ with God, and Jesus was attested by the Father, then the very same things that the Father said over Jesus are the very same things that he says over us. That we, as his children, we 
also need to be attested by the Father. You and I need to hear from the Father the very same things that Jesus heard. It's essential that we know this truth, but we, it's essential as well that we hear it from the Father, that we hear it in times in his presence as he blesses us with these realities because these are deep human needs for all of us. We need to know this. And so as we would wrap this message up this morning and go to a time of prayer, if you would turn to the book of Ephesians, if you're in Matthew, just make your way back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four Gospels, Acts, Romans, and First and Second Corinthians, then Galatians and Ephesians. I read the first, or I read the last few verses, verses 13 through 14 from the screen, but I want to read for us and talk through so we can see quickly this idea of what the Father says over his children, over us in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have been included in Christ, and Christ is in us. Therefore, every spiritual blessing, if you are a believer in Jesus, every spiritual blessing is yours. You lack no good thing. It's all there. And so when we think about this idea of the Father saying, you are my son, he says it over us, you are my son or you are my daughter this morning. In verses four through six, Paul says, for he chose us, God chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, before time ever existed. He, hear this, he chose you. What did he choose you? He chose you in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined. In other words, he settled this before time ever existed. You to be adopted as his son or daughter through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Adopted children have all the rights and all the identity of a biological child. An adopted child in the Roman world that Paul was writing was a child that was outside of the family but brought into the family. And that child had every, just as adopted children have today, have every right of a biological child. We were once not the children of God. We were, the truth is, children of the devil, but we have been rescued through Christ. We'll see that in a moment and brought in, and we have been chosen to be the sons and the daughters of God. And every spiritual blessing, every inheritance of the Father, every inheritance of Christ is ours. Not because I've done it, you've done it, but because he has gifted it to us. He's made us sons and daughters. He's chosen you to be his. He's your father, and you belong to him. Jesus heard, this is my son whom I love. We see this love of God for us. 
the end of verse 5 and on to verse 4, in love he did all of this. In love he did it. In love he adopted us. In love he chose us. In love, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. The father did not do this because he had to. The father did not do it because, oh, I guess I will. The father did it because in love he chose. And his love motivated him to send his son to die on the cross, to pay for our, being, our redemption or being bought back from sin. We can talk about being loved by God all day long. I could talk about it till I'm blue in the face. But you need an encounter with God in his presence to know the love of the Father. And I long for us in times of worship and prayer and waiting on him to know the love of the Father. Because there will be nothing that can satisfy, nothing that can settle us like the love of God. You are my son whom I love and you I'm well pleased. There's pleasure for us by the Father in God. How do I know this? Verses 9 and 10, and then we'll wrap up quickly. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. For thousands of years, there was mystery about what God was up to. And God has let us in on this profound mystery of how he has been at work to bring all things together back to himself in Christ. And he says, I want you to know about it. If that doesn't speak to the pride and the pleasure that the Father has over us, I don't know what does, that he would let us in on the mysteries of his will. I want you to see what I've done. Because you're my son or my daughter. And I love you. And I'm well pleased in you. Not because you've done well, but simply because you're mine. Every human being desperately longs to know that they belong. That they belong to someone. That they're loved. That they're liked. <laughs> Not just loved, but liked. And that they bring pleasure to another person. And all of this is in Christ for us from the Father. In revival, we understand these truths. Not just in an intellectual way, but in an encounter way. I shared about the friend who went down to help at Asbury where college students, Generation Z, filled the auditorium. And in addition to being filled with the Spirit, one of the things that was a constant thing that came up was they were understanding how beloved they were of God. They were understanding, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love and whom I am well pleased. In revival, the things we know 
become the things that are deeply seated in our hearts that we experience and we hear from the Father. So may we, in increasing ways, encounter the Spirit and the approval of the Father. Mary is going to lead us through a short time of prayer application, and then the worship team will lead us in a time of worship. I think after hearing that, there's a very clear application, um, which is spending some time waiting. And so I want to invite us to just take a couple of minutes here. Maybe you're very experienced in waiting in the presence of the Lord and in listening prayer, or maybe three to five minutes kind of feels like a stretch, and I've been in both places. Um, but we do want to take a few moments to wait on God. We want to take a few moments to listen for what he is saying to each of us individually. Um, and so I just encourage you, even now, if you just want to bow your head um, and choose maybe a word that describes God um, or choose a name of God, I find that oftentimes distractions try to seep in and we need something that continues to refocus us. And so for me today, I think I would say Lord of Lords. Man, and just every time I feel my brain start to go in the wrong direction, I go, oh Jesus, Lord of Lords. And I refocus myself to listen um, for what he is saying in this time. And sometimes that's a gentle whisper Maybe it's some peace or assurance that you didn't fully have before. It could be a song or a picture. But God knows you intimately. He knows you better than anyone else knows you, better than you know yourself. And that means he knows what to speak to you, and he also knows how to speak to you if we're willing to take some time to listen. So we'll enter into this time of prayer together um, and I will open us, but then we're just gonna leave these next couple minutes for you to listen. Lord God, we open our hands this morning for you to speak to us here and now, for Lord, we believe that you speak today, that you are active today to say whatever you want to us in whatever way you want. And Lord, we're open to that. We want to align ourselves with your will, with your heart. So Lord God, we put down distractions, we lay them aside, and we choose to focus on you, on Jesus. And we open ourselves up maybe to a deeper understanding of who we are as your children, or to a fresh filling of your spirit. Lord, you know what that looks like for each of us. And so we spend this time waiting for you, God. <laughs> 